This episode is brought to you by mParticle, the growth API. mParticle is the best way to connect your customer data to all the leading marketing and measurement partners. And you need those partners to run and grow your business in a multi-screen world. It's a data platform that's trusted by both marketers and engineers alike at forward-thinking brands like Airbnb, Spotify, Hulu, Postmates, Venmo, and many others. Visit mparticle.com slash decode to learn about how mparticle can help modernize your data infrastructure and accelerate growth. This podcast is also sponsored by GoCD, an on-premise open-source continuous delivery server by ThoughtWorks. GoCD gives you complete control of and visibility into your deployments across multiple teams. To learn more about GoCD, visit gocd.io slash recode for a free download. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as the only person ever to binge watch the Brady Bunch Hour, but in my spare time, I talk tech and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas and how they're changing the world we live in. You can subscribe to Recode Decode at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. And while you're there, leave us a review. Today in the red chair, I am happy to have Tristan Harris, the founder of Time Well Spent. It's a movement to create apps and other tech products that value the time of their users. He previously co-founded AppSure, which was acquired by Google in 2011. And then at Google, he spent nearly three years studying the intersection of ethics, philosophy, and tech. Tristan, welcome to Recode Decode. Thanks for having me. So I have been interested in you for a long time and what you've been doing. And I actually read this fantastic piece on you in The Atlantic on some issues that I've been thinking about a lot. And I thought it was just astonishing that you're thinking the way a lot of people are thinking now about the impact of tech um, in a way that's not so good for humanity. So why don't you give us some background first? Give me your sort of quick five-minute bio. Well, I used to be, I grew up actually in the Bay Area in San Francisco. And since I was about 10 or 11, thought I wanted to change the world and work for Steve Jobs and mm-hmm. work for Apple. So I did when why, I was why, 18. Why was that? You just saw what he was doing, think different? Yeah, just to sort of anchor this conversation, mm-hmm. I think, about how technology is empowering us or not. I mean, I was really inspired by the computer's a bicycle for our mind. Mm-hmm. I wanted to work on the next Macintosh. I worked at Apple when I was 18, when I was actually here at Stanford uh, mm-hmm. doing an internships. I worked on this company called Apture, which was... Uh, quickest way to explain it is a one-click explanation engine for things when you're on the internet. Mm -hmm. And actually, related to this conversation, I first became aware that there's a difference between our social mission, which I kept telling myself as CEO. Right. So you're very very classic. You're a very classic geek that you want to change things, that you more than just selling plastics or working at a Walmart or figuring out finance or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the motivation for the company was like, how can we make people more curious and make it easy to learn about things? Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, we were selling our explanation product to publishers like the New York Times or TechCrunch or something. And I faced this conflict because publishers wanted us to just increase engagement to make right. people spend more time on their website. Engagement. What a word. Engagement. Huh? What a word, right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm very it used skeptical to be a nice like thing, this. like you get engaged to be married. Yeah, right. It's just horrible. <laughs> and and I would keep telling myself that, oh, no, no, but we're, we're helping people learn about things. But then to sell the product successfully, I had to just increase time on their website or make right. them more money. Right. And I kept pretending that this was the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I started basically really questioning my own beliefs about mm-hmm. what is the thing I'm calling educating people or helping them learn about something? Right. What is that actually happening? And when am I just as a founder telling myself some positive story, mm-hmm. which you have to do to inspire investors sure, and absolutely. employees? But when in fact you were just sort of durable, get them to keep eating. Get them to, to stay on there. And, mm-hmm. you know, to, you know, in terms of my background, the other thing uh, was that actually very close to where we are right now at Stanford, uh, literally a building down the street, 
uh, I studied at the Persuasive Technology Lab uh, mm-hmm. with BJ Fogg. Right. Uh, famous, famous. Famous habit, you know, studied habit formation. And, 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 the and first who many to, companies have used his work. Oh, absolutely. Him and then later Nir Eyal and mm-hmm. the author of the book Hooked. Uh, there's essentially this whole, most people don't know this, there's this whole discipline and field of persuasive technology. There's basically a playbook of how to persuade people's minds to use products more mm-hmm. successfully. The nicotine of tech, essentially. Yeah, that, that imposes a sort of a moral view sure. on, on all these things. I mean, you could argue, and then, as many do, uh, these persuasion principles are happening all the time, and then these guys just want to use it consciously. But I got right. really interested in the sure. ethics of that. What is right. the ethics of persuasion, mm-hmm. especially when the consequences in this case now affect billions of people? And to ground that conversation in that class that year in 2006, uh, the founder of Instagram and I, uh, or it was Mike Krieger, one of the founders of Instagram and I, were project partners. Mm-hmm. And so I, I saw many alumni in that class go on to be early in the ranks of Facebook and, mm-hmm. and Instagram, and I got really concerned about you know, how do we as with, with this power to persuade people uh, to spend time on things, how do we know that that's good? How do we truly verify? Or do you even ask the question to start with? Or do you ask the question? So, in that class, we did ask the question, though, to right. be fair. So persuasive technology means how to use technology to be more persuasive or to get people to do things. Which How did you look at Because you could define that numbers of way, different ways. Yeah. It's, so specifically, I think the way BJ defines it is persuasive technology is to persuade people's attitudes and behaviors. I think to get them to do one. whatever. To get them to do things. So in mm-hmm. your product, you want them to finish signing up on an email form. Or click you here. Click here. You want them to subscribe to a newsletter. You want them to scroll for longer. You want them to uh, invite their friends uh, mm-hmm. to, you don't want them to fill out a profile on LinkedIn, you know. Uh, so there's just all of these things that products need to do to be successful. And this class was just, was re-examining what we traditionally call design mm-hmm. in terms of a different frame of persuasion. How do okay. I persuade them to do something? Which design does, like come into this door, isn't this attractive, this product, the shape and feel of it? And Ab- absolutely. And so none of this is really new. I mean, this has been going on in marketing or store design like Walmart mm-hmm. for ages. Uh, but when you apply it to technology, suddenly the scale is totally mm-hmm. different. I'll never forget one time I was at Circuit City. This was a million years ago uh, in the 80s. And I was covering Circuit City at the time was a big retailer. And there was a wall of televisions and I was walking through it with the CEO. He goes, ah, the wall of confusion. And I was like, what? They they purposely put up so many televisions you don't know what to buy and then they move you to the one they want you to buy that particular day and some of them were you know done badly so that you wouldn't want it it was i was horrified but and then of course they had the racetrack where you can't escape and it was a similar kind of thing which reminds me a lot of what's happening in technology which is more effective actually even so you don't even know what's happening Totally. I mean, and so most people have some sense that, you know, when you go to Walmart or just a grocery store, that the design is explicit. Yeah. There's probably some team of people somewhere who had to think deep, you know, deeply right. think about End all this. Caps and, and where things are placed on shelves. And totally. Stuff. And the milks and the, I mean, the pharmacy, the two reasons people go to the grocery store most often are for milk and for um, the pharmacy. Mm-hmm. And so they put... In the, the back. They're the back. There's a big debate about whether milk is at the back because it's the closest place to load it in and keep it fresh. But needless to say, there's still just all this persuasion there. Mm. But most people don't know with technology. The, new, the, the common narrative about, you know, these tools is these are just neutral platforms. It's up to people to choose how to use them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's just up to us to learn how we have to adapt to this new technology. And right. that just ignores this conversation about persuasion. So talk about that ethics of it because you talked about it in the class. Mm-hmm. And did anyone care or just say, yeah, yeah, yeah? Yeah, no, it, it is part of the curriculum mm-hmm. uh, both then and, and, and now. And BJ likes to point that out and he's right to. You know, was I think we had, we had these like one one three hour class that was just about the ethics. But really, ethics is just about asking the question. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just about really being honest with yourself. How would I know if this is actually good for someone? And what are the variables? Um, 
and we can go into it, but it's 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 really a, a rich and complex field. I mean, mm-hmm. does the persuadee know what the persuader's goals are? Right. Are yeah. they aware? Do they know that the persuader has a huge amount of expertise in their methods, mm-hmm. that there are methods even present? Mm-hmm. Does the persuader have respect for the persuadee? Mm-hmm. Um, does the persuadee get the ultimate thing that they wanted? What are the persuadee's goals? Does mm-hmm. the persuadee even know their goals? Most of the time, we don't know our goals when mm-hmm. we're using software. Right. So there's just all of these rich variables. I would say no to all those things. I think, I think yeah. they're being manipulated almost all the time. Yeah, and, and words like manipulate, persuade, coerce, there's there's official nomenclature for some of this right, stuff. But 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 yeah, I mean this this is a rich topic and this is the conversation, I think, is what is persuasion and what is the ethics of persuasion. All right. So you do this class and then what? You create your company. Yep. You're trying company to not right lie to yourself that you're not trying to get them to use the products more. Mm-hmm. Which um, is the goal. Yep. And you know, and then I justified it obviously by well, people are benefiting from it, but you know, we we had good intentions. I just became aware of this conflict. Mm-hmm. The attention economy demands that you know, otherwise, so product design used to be about building a product that functions well, that helps people, and now design is sort of I, I recognize in working on the company that design became subsumed into the how do I get people to use it? How mm-hmm. do I get people's attention? How do I hold them here? Uh, so design, almost all designers are now in this totally different role mm-hmm. of just getting people's attention. So I did that with the company and started to realize that uh, our company got talent acquired by Google. And I was... Acquired. Acquired uh, by Google. And then um, about a year into being at Google, uh, I was actually working on the Gmail team. Right. And we are actually we're working on Inbox, which is the successor to, to Gmail. And, you know, I was part of conversations about... How do we make it easy or sort of delightful to use your email client? How do we build mm-hmm. a better email client? And I felt like we were missing kind of this deeper question, which is like, I mean, how much time do we all spend on email? Just so much time. Waste of time, yeah. And, and how much of any of that is ever adding up to a positive contribution mm-hmm. to your life? Maybe two emails a week or right, something. Right, like, like just such a yeah. small yeah. number, right? Yeah. And so here I am part of this room of good, smart people trying to build, you know, do a good job on building a great email product. But there's this there's this really deeper kind of subtler question, which is how would we design this not just so it's kind of cool and has some nice animations and, uh, you know, makes it easy to do a few actions and makes it simple to use. And instead ask, like, how would you pivot this entire paradigm to actually about those two emails a week that mm-hmm. actually make life better? Sure. And, and that conversation wasn't happening and there'd be decisions, you know, being made about you know, for example, um, should we send you a push notification mm-hmm. for new emails when you get them by default? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'd hear some engineers and designers just quickly think through this question and say, yeah, sure, wh- why not? Right. And it's like, wait a second, in that one moment, in that one moment, a billion people, mm-hmm. you know, as a consequence of this, right. will be interrupted at dinner, will not right. look at their kids. like right. just which they're not thinking of- about at all. I mean, I think it, it crosses the mind, but the question is, like, whose job is it in that room, in space and time, inside of a, you know, one of these concrete structures somewhere within a couple miles of where we are right now? Whose job is it in those product design rooms to ask that question about consequences? Well, I would say, do they want to ask that question? Because one of the things you do get from them when they say, I'm working, one of the reason I went to Google, I've heard this for a million people who've gone to Google or slash Facebook slash whatever, is I realized I had the possibility to attack, you know, to impact a billion people. And that was so attractive. And I would always ask, well, 
what were you impacting them? Like, right. and it, but they, and that was never the second part of mm-hmm. their, they're like, I just, how? I just get to impact them. And I'm like, well, that could be for bad or good. And believe me, when that moved into that, it was almost like I was saying, speaking, uh, you know, Latin to them. It was fascinating because right. that's, they never thought of that. And there's nothing within the companies to, they never think of that. It's just to do it for doing sake. Yeah. To increase engagement or whatever the goal is. For sure. What scares me more is when there's usually, because there is a positive intention in the tech industry to mm. make things better. Yes, that is the um, intention. The assumption is that to impact them at all would be to impact them positively. Yes, exactly. And so what scares me the most is, is again, how would we know if we're wrong? Mm-hmm. How, how could you, inside the mind of someone well, who didn't see something, do we measure know it? what you don't see? Or do we measure it? Or do, what, what are our measure, What are our standards for measurement? Yeah. So what, what did you do there? When you, were you being irritating to them by saying, wait a minute, shouldn't we think about this? Or, what did you, or did you just go along with it? No, I, I mean, I worked on the team. I was, I was you know, participating in the conversations, but I just had this growing feeling of like something is wrong. And at the mm-hmm. same time, I felt like, you know, I was using... At Google, especially, you just get flooded with emails and mm-hmm. flooded with calendar invites, and you're mm-hmm. using technology a lot, like just all the time. And I was just feeling like, man, is any of this making life better? Mm-hmm. And I was kind of, I kind of had it, had personally just on, on my own enough, uh, and I started making this presentation, which is referenced in that Atlantic piece, uh, which was when I say a presentation, I mean it was just a, a deck, a slide deck, but. I made it in a very high impact way. I mean, every slide was a big photo with a four words, basically saying you advance really quickly through it. it said never before in history have basically 50 mostly men mostly 20 to 35 mostly mm-hmm. white you know engineer designer types within 50 miles of where we are right now had control of what a billion people think and do when they wake up in the morning and turn mm-hmm. their phone over and you know look at this thing and we should basically we have an enormous responsibility to get this right and it had a whole bunch of stuff in there about cognitive biases and how we play on people's psychological vulnerabilities by mm-hmm. accident and just made this case. So I made this presentation thinking this is kind of like a, a thing I just personally care about right before I was planning to leave. And I sent it to about 10 people. And when I came into work the next morning uh, and I clicked on the, the Google slide deck that shows you on the top right how many people are, are looking mm-hmm. at it. And there was something like 100 people looking, looking at, at it. it right then. And so I thought, well, I only sent it to 10 people. So mm-hmm. clearly it was starting to spread. I looked at it later that day. There was like 300. The next day there was 400. I went to the in the Google bus in the morning and on most many of the laptop screens in the Google bus had it open. So there was really this moment. Um, it was at the number one in meme gen, which is the internal company mm-hmm. uh, thing. And, um, and, and basically it had gone around the company saying like, whoa, yeah, we should, we should really be thinking about this. Right. And as a result of that, I was fortunate that, uh, you know, not that I was, I'd done it in a way that would get me fired, but mm-hmm. you know, I was basically offered a chance to stay and mm-hmm. generously given a space to think about the ethics of all of this stuff and, mm-hmm. uh, and did so for the next very couple Google of years. Very Google of them to do that. Yeah. You know, to, to Google's credit, it very generously let, let me do that. And, um, you know, but it's very hard to change these systems from the inside because as anybody knows, trying to change any big system from the inside mm-hmm. is very challenging. So I, I, I left actually in, in, in large part to have conversations like this so one. So you stayed there for how long doing this? A couple years. A couple years. That's how they do it, though. They keep you, you know, we should think of it. I could see them patting themselves on the back that we're thinking of. I can just, it's like a, an episode of Silicon Valley in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's it's complicated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you stay, what did you do? What was your impact there when you were there then? Well, I, I um... So you were the ethics guru, apparently. Well, or something. I, yeah, I, I mean, it's not like I was the guy and then everybody came to me. I mm-hmm. mean, I actually felt kind of the opposite. I, I felt like I was trying to figure something out. Yeah. Which is, what are we, 
how do we work out this question of, you know, when is email actually making life better? What does mm-hmm. that mean? I mean, it's, it's a lot of philosophy. It's, it's design. It's thinking. It's looking at examples. It's attention. It's well-being. It's like life choices. It's about free will. It's about when is someone making a choice. It's about documenting mm-hmm. all of the cognitive biases that exist, taking all the stuff from behavioral economics, just saying, like, where do people's minds get tripped up? Where, just to make intersection, you know, one map is where do people's minds get tripped up? Just like with like a magic trick, like, oh, mm-hmm. I can stun them. I can add a slot machine. I can mm-hmm. give them social obligations they feel like they have to repay. It's like, what are all the things that trip up minds? Mm-hmm. And then where are the products that we make doing that or allowing that to happen or encouraging that to happen? And when is it resulting in good or bad so outcomes? So did your, your stuff there result in any changes to products? Not really, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, I made some proposals. Uh, Such as? You know, things that, so specifically, the thing, the reason I stayed Mm -hmm. uh, is because, you know, there's really two companies that can actually change this this system. It's Apple and it's Google. Mm -hmm. Um, Because they're the mediators between, you know, there's a billion minds through which then all of these apps and websites and all this stuff has access directly to your mind uh, through the vehicle, which is the smartphone uh, or a web browser. And only two companies make those things. I mean, web browser, sure. But Really, it's just the smartphone uh, is such a the, the dominant medium. So it would really be about changing Android and iOS's home screen notifications and um, the web browser. So, for example, little things like uh, let's imagine that you could mark websites that you wanted to be more mindful of your time. Mm-hmm. You know, you say I I, just, I don't want to use Twitter for more than about fifteen minutes. I know there's a thousand engineers at Twitter whose job is to make me use it as long as possible. I want to use it for 15 minutes. So imagine you can mark Twitter that way and it disappears from your new tab screen so it doesn't ever invite you to go there when you don't want to. Mm-hmm. Then when you hit T and autocompletes, it shows you inside of the autocomplete, you know, the number of minutes you spent there so far, right. Then and which is fine. And then it, it changes color, let's say, when you have gone past the 15 minutes or whatever right. and you're about to go there and then it says, are you sure? And maybe some breathing thing comes right. up for half a second. Sure. There's just different ways you could do this. Yeah. I don't have exactly the right solution. And the answer I got back was, uh, well, Free will. <laughs> well, actually, it's interesting. One of the common arguments in the tech industry is like, look, users are free choices. They can make mm-hmm. their own choices. And it's really just not 100% true. We, no. uh, people's minds are shaped and manipulating these moments. And the second argument, and that, that is very much a Google ethos, by the mm-hmm. way, is, um, you know, Google much more so even than Apple, I think, is built on. And Facebook, on, yeah. And Facebook is certainly. These three companies are, have very strong libertarian values. People mm-hmm. make their own choices. And also in the case of this, uh, there's opportunities for extensions, Chrome extensions to do some of these things. Mm-hmm. But of course, it's a long story, but some of the extensions don't give you access to the to the places in the UI you'd actually need to fix sure. to really focus on this problem. I would say, Tristan, they don't want to do that. They, they, it's not in their interest to do that, to make you aware of how much time suck is sucking out of your life. Well, so it starts to point the finger at maybe a growing problem, right? Right. And so... Uh, you know, I don't think any of these companies are evil or any of the people are evil. I think there's some bad incentives where we measure something that's fundamentally opposed mm-hmm. to what's good for people. The question is, how honest can we be about that right. when we discover it? Well, we're going to talk about that next because I've had some real big run-ins with people at all these companies recently about fake news and alternate facts and all kinds of things that I think they're absolutely responsible for and they absolutely do not think they are. So we'll talk about that more and what you're doing with time well spent. Hmm. We're about to enter an era where home robots are part of our daily lives, and I just met one of those robots. Her name is Curry. That's spelled K-U-R-I. Curry is a home robot companion. I had a chance to meet the team that made her recently in Silicon Valley. 
If you want to know what she looks like, imagine C-3PO from Star Wars mixed with an adorable little child. Very small, cute, and also helpful. It's not just a robot. She'll be an interactive member of your household. She moves around on her own and knows how to avoid obstacles and stairs. She communicates through expressive eyes and head gestures. She will greet you when you get home, unlike your teenagers. She understands when you talk to her and responds back in her own language of chirps and beeps. And when you're not home, Curry can be your eyes and ears, like a house sitter. Right from your phone, you can see what's happening. She will check on your kids or your pets. And if she hears a loud noise, she'll go investigate. Curry is available for pre-order right now at heycurry.com. That's H-E-Y-K-U-R-I.com. Go to heycurry.com today. I'd also like to tell you about Code Media, an exclusive two-day event that's coming up in February. And I'm here with Recode's senior media editor and podcaster extraordinaire on Recode Media, Peter Kafka. How you doing? That is a very nice introduction. I know. Hi, Kara. Very nice. I don't know if you know that. Be silent. So Code Media is February 13th and 14th at the Ritz-Carlton in Dana Point, California. Peter, tell us a little bit about the event. Who are we going to talk to? We're going to find the most interesting, the most important, and the most brainy people in tech and so media. most. Pe- okay. Most. All right. If you're least, you can't be on stage. No. So there's a guy, Ben Thompson. He's sort of a self-made business, media business analyst, super smart. Everyone in media and tech follows him. He's in Taiwan. He runs a newsletter called Strategery. Love it. Terrible Love name. Newsletter. Super smart. He's wicked smart. He's coming in from Taiwan to speak to us. Wow. Which is super cool. I've wanted to do this for a couple of years, so he'll be joining us. Well, I'm really looking forward to it, and I hope to see some of our listeners there. Code Media is February 13th and 14th in Dana Point, California. For all the details and to get your ticket, visit recode.net slash events. We're here today with Tristan Harris, the founder of Time Well Spent. He's actually a geek who is thinking about the impact of the things he makes in technology. And we've been talking about his time at Google where he was trying to get them to think about the uses of the technology that Google, such a powerful player in the industry, makes. But then you left. Correct. You were doing some of the ethics around how we we get our technology and what the responsibility of the platforms are. Talk about what you did after you left. And then I want to get into this idea of who's responsible Mm -hmm. um, and the fact that most platforms that I encounter want to abrogate their responsibility almost totally for their what they're doing. And now it seems like the chickens are coming home to roost, as they say, you know, right now, especially in this election and things like that, where mm-hmm. where social media has become weaponized, um, where there's real world impact. And one of the things I was thinking about was that, you know, they all talk about how they want to change the world. But now that they actually did, they don't want to take responsibility for it. Right. Kind of thing. Right. So talk about what you did after Ghost. You leave, yep. sold your company, you stayed there, then you left. Stay Typical there. journey of... Yeah. Yeah. Um, before I had left, I gave a, uh, a TED Talk uh, mm-hmm. to introduce this concept of time well spent. Yes, which got a lot of attention. Um, and and that, that helped kind of launch really just this um, – I mean, what it meant to do was say you need something to fix this. You have essentially uh, a perverse incentive in a market, and you need to be able to say how would, how would we get out of this. And, and part of it, just like I learned from inside of Google, is that Google wasn't going to do something until consumer demand was there. I mean, sure. some of the things – you said you know, they didn't want to do it. I would say – you know, if they, if there was evidence that a million people just said, God, you know, I am distracted all the time. I feel like this stuff is manipulating my mind and I want the technology companies to help me do it. The consumers, consumer demand could speak for Would something different. Would that ever different. happen? Well, it doesn't happen on its own. And so no. not that I, you know, arrogantly thought I could kind of make all that happen, but I wanted to create a conversation about consumer demand as well. Mm-hmm. So the TED Talk in part 
was about saying, just like with the organic food movement, you right. know, oh, where fair point. Yeah. They're, they're, you know, Walmart had no incentive to do other than the race to the bottom of the cheapest apple for the cheapest for the lettuce, price. Right. Yeah, for the lettuce. Unless consumers said, you know, first of all, there was education that, hey, the cheapest thing isn't actually good for us because right. the it's killing chemicals you. that are, you know, that are right. put on there to get that price don't make it good for us. And but then people have to be able to define and articulate, well, what is that thing that's worth paying for? Uh, and with technology, you know, right now everything's free. And so uh, when it's free, I mean, how much are we paying for our Facebook accounts? Right. I mean, nothing. nothing. So it means that, you know, while they want to benefit us, that that's not who they're beholden to. They're beholden to the advertiser. Uh, and so, you know, we need something like an organic food movement for the tech industry. Mm-hmm. That's one market intervention style. Other ways involve regulation. Other sure. ways involve taxes. Which they hate. Um, it, which are not on the positive side. So the mm-hmm. one collaborative solution is to say, let's let's charge more for something that's actually good for people or aligned with people's interests. Mm-hmm. But then that gets into a whole other conversation about admitting when parts of the product today are not aligned with people's interests. Right. Um, and I think that's Meaning we're an important... giving you, the poor people, the bad food, and the rich people, meanwhile, enjoy the fruits of yeah. whole, whole food or something like that. Right. And and how do, how do you, if it's the same company that has to provide that, for mm-hmm. example, um, because you can't fork it into two companies. Right. Um, imagine if Safeway said, well, we have Safeway, but then we have Safeway Plus. Mm-hmm. And you'd be like, well, hold on a second. Mm-hmm. And so it, Whole Foods is different. Right. It's a separate company. But yeah, so how do you basically, you know, segment that out? I, so, I was going to say the cigarette industry, I remember... When there was conversations and discovery that, you know, maybe this is not good for people. Right. Maybe. <laughs> maybe, maybe. All these dead people here. I don't know. Uh, but most people don't know the cigarette industry actually spent over a billion dollars developing a safe cigarette. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, one of the reasons they didn't release it is would be to say, if we're releasing a safe cigarette, what does that make regular cigarettes? Non-safe. Yeah. So there's a really important and subtle conversation, which is how do you navigate once you discover a repugnant market? How do you navigate to the better territory? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like when you 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 were creating a whole economy on something, uh, and then you realize, uh oh, maybe it's based on something that's not totally good. So you know, slavery was another interesting example. For mm-hmm. a while, people thought that was okay, and then, <laughs> and then it wasn't. And then it wasn't. And then you realize, uh oh, we can't actually just say this is bad. We have to get out of it. Too much of our economy is dependent on it. Mm-hmm. So it's it's much subtler the way that. That's a really fair selling, point. That's a good example. You know, it's much subtler the way that attention, selling attention is bad. It's not like it's evil or it's slavery or it's killing people. It's much more subtle. It's much more diluted. And if they stop, others might just rush in. Right, exactly. So it's a game theoretic thing. Mm-hmm. So if I don't do it, the other guys still do, I'll just die. And mm-hmm. I, I'm, I can't, like, kill myself for my shareholders. Um, right, just because I feel better. Just because it makes it's the right thing to do or something like that. So, so, so the question is, how do you lift out of a repugnant situation into a better terrain? So how do you do that? Well, so, you know, um, so f- first of all, it involves actually honest conversation. I mean, right. a recognition of what's good, what's bad. How do we talk about that? How do we know? Um, you know, with slavery, I like to give this example sometimes. Historically, a lot of people don't realize. Uh, obviously, that took place over a long, long period of time, that transition. It involved <laughs> civil war. Um, the British government, do you know what the British government uh, had to give up to give up slavery? When they decided they were going to do it, they calculated they would. it was equivalent to losing 2% of their GDP every year for 60 years mm-hmm. to basically give up slavery. So once you discover that something's not good, sometimes you can charge Quantify. extra and kind of like make up for the difference and mm-hmm. kind of blend between these two worlds. And sometimes you might just have to take a small haircut. It's just the because haircut. Yeah, it's, it's just a cost. Just, it's just a cost and it's yeah. an externality. All right. And so I think a good metaphor for what's happening right now is it's just like um, pollution. I mean, you know, when car when we all got cars, it was great. Like we can now go to all these new places 
and, uh, you know, totally transformed civic life and we could go to do things we couldn't do before. But it also added pollution to our environment. And it isolated us. It put us in individual transportation units, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not that cars are bad, but the first versions were really pollutive and they isolated us. So cell phones are kind of similar. I mean, they're taking us all these interesting new places. They're doing lots of amazing positive things. This is Mm -hmm. not a unilateral conversation. Sure, that's the problem. That's That's the the problem. People get tripped up when something is Mm -hmm. so good and offers them so many amazing things Mm -hmm. that they can then say, well, then it must not be bad. Right. But it's because our mind tends to do this black and white thinking. Sure. So the question is, can we not get rid of the cars or get rid of the cell phones or get rid of Facebook? Let's instead say, can we build like the green version, the one that's both empowering and doesn't pollute our internal environment or pollute our social environment? So you've created this organization to do what? Just raise awareness of these things. We've done a few things. And and I think there's a few different activities that kind of need to exist. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, one is we've taught design workshops to try and also just put forth like this is a way to think about what a time well spent design experience is right um and and um and giving you know we've hosted a few of them we've gotten designers from different companies they're all independently though we'd like to actually elevate it to a a much higher level you know i think there also needs to be a convening force in the industry because right now essentially you know apple google and facebook are kind of like these private companies who collectively are the urban planners of a billion people's uh, attentional landscape right. like we all live <laughs> That's in a great we, all, way to put it. You know, we kind of all live in this invisible city right and, which they created which they created and there's what's the question is what's unlike a democracy where you have some civic representation and you mm-hmm. can say well who's the mayor and mm-hmm. should there be a stoplight there a stop, stoplight on our phone mm-hmm. or blinker signals between the cars or these kinds of things uh, we don't have any representation except if we don't use the no. product or don't buy it and that's not really representation because the city itself. So is... attention taxation without representation. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. But so I think you know, there's this question of how do we create that accountability loop? First of all, who are the people that ask the questions about what's that balance between what's good for the business and commerce in that city, which we need to function well? Mm-hmm. Um, which is to say, you know, yeah, people need to get to websites, buy stuff, buy games, buy buy things that they want. How do we make commerce successful? How do we make app developers successful? And also, how do we, you know, think about human values? Who's the Jane Jacobs of this attentional right. city? I was just reading her book, actually. Death recently. and Life of Great American yeah. Cities. Yeah, I, there's been a whole bunch of new books on her, and I find yeah, she's fascinating. She's Especially where she started back. out, which was very opposite of where she ended up, which right. is interesting. Yeah, interesting. Um, it, she's a fascinating person. Yeah. This is Jane Jacobs, who who is city planner, just a urban planning urban planning needs, person who yeah. just really talked a lot about human cities. Yeah, exactly. What makes a, a the urban planning of a city? What makes a great city great from a human perspective? Right. The eyes on the streets, sidewalks, widths. You know, the stoops in New York. These kinds right. of city. And West what Village. was was eliminated in so much of the urban renovation that created these wastelands, of, right? And crime and other how it leads to stuff like that. It was. It, you know, we could look at it a lot today. You're right. It's a very similar thing. Totally. And so, so you know, it's almost different talking about inspiring people. Like who at Apple and at Google are the Jane Jacobs of this of this attentional city? Who mm-hmm. who has the time? Who's given the mandate and the, and the explicit carve out that says, yeah, it's our job to think about what's really good for people. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's, you ask, in terms of time well spent, you know, we want to bring together the leadership of those people who really care about having that conversation uh, together to talk about it. And the question is, you know, you just mentioned one of the tricky things is a lot of upset people in the world at these tech companies for for, for many good and bad reasons. Um, and 
you know, when you start to talk about it in public or talk to each other, there's some NDA confidentiality issues. Mm-hmm. There's some, if we start talking like this, suddenly we bear the responsibility entirely and mm-hmm. everyone's going to be upset at us. Uh, and so, I, you know, I think there's, there's a question of how do we make it safe and cooperative to acknowledge that this is our role. We are designing what a billion people think and believe Well, I day. think you're, the only thing is I don't think they believe it, first of all. Yeah. Nor do they think about it. And then when you challenge them, I was just telling this before we started, I w- I've been recently driving Facebook executives crazy over this fake news thing. And every time they release something, I'm like, this is ridiculous. And once again, you're saying something completely stupid. And I was getting into it with one executive. I won't say who it was, but pretty high up. And this person said, oh, you have so much vitriol. And I said, first of all, that's a thing you say to a woman to get her to shut up. But that doesn't work with me. And what was interesting, I was like, it's not vitriol. I care about the civic life of our digital world. Like, I just really do. And I feel like you're polluting it in a way that's really dangerous. And you have real life examples of impact. And you don't want to, you want to pretend that you have no culpability and that there's nothing you can do about it. And then I outlined six or seven things they could do. Mm. And of course, it's all like, well, we could. It's like, no, you actually could. Like, you actually, if this concerned you, and then they're like, well, we don't want to wade in. Like, they always have some sort of, we don't want to impact it. I said, yeah, but you created and you're making money off of it. So, and you've killed like, You've killed off media, pretty much. No, we haven't. I said, mm, you kind of have. Like, it's, it, whether it was the right... Well, consumers wanted it. That's true. And therefore, now you inherit the responsibility. So how do you get them to talk about it? Because this is a group of people that literally think they have almost no responsibility. Very few people within these companies think they have responsibility for this. I think in part that's right. I think many people don't think there's responsibility. I think there's I know another... the leadership doesn't. <clears throat> yeah. I wonder sometimes, though, about... Um, there's that which people internally believe, and then that's which is allowable to say to mm-hmm. a public-facing audience. Mm-hmm. Um, people don't like to feel lied to, but sometimes, you know, if you don't know where information is going to go, people, I think it, the tech companies almost have to say, you know, because of their shareholders, like, no, we don't have responsibility. We can't. It would be impossible for us to take on the liability of, mm-hmm. you know, the elections of the free world right. um, as our responsibility, even though obviously, mm-hmm. you know, in the case of Facebook and Twitter, it's shaping that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I do wonder uh, to what extent that responsibility is there. I mean, I, I, I really want we, – we definitely need to change the consciousness to the point where people accept that that is happening. There, there's no way around it. Right. I mean, um, if I design a product that there's a variable reward that shows up when I hit return, sometimes I get something and sometimes I don't, it's going to feel – it's going to act on my mind the way like a slot machine does. Right. And if it does that, whether whether that company intended for that to happen or not, it's they still designed it that way. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not that suddenly, you know, they're evil because they're doing this. It's just that they have a responsibility in knowing that that impact is there mm-hmm. and to, to devote some so engineering So talk a little bit about, let's it. use the example of fake news, for example. Yeah. Um, this has been, and I understand a lot of it's been hyped. It's every, there's so many factors that come into this election, which has yeah. been so ugly and has really divided this country especially on social media. I mean, Twitter has just become a hellscape at this point, you know, in terms of waiting in there. It's an angry mob of different sides going at each other, It's, but it's addictive and strangely addictive. Give me a, your take on the fake news thing because people do – you were talking about people, if you figure out fear works. Yeah, yeah, right. So the way to reframe a lot of these conversations, just to sort of name it, is again the attention economy. Mm-hmm. You know, if – your business, if you're a news website mm-hmm. or even a meditation app or a news website or a game or whatever, uh, whatever Netflix, you're always competing for attention. You don't exist. Even as a meditation app, you don't exist if you don't get 10 minutes of that person's right. day. Right, right. So it's not about 
good people, bad people, bad com- companies, good companies. It's just about everyone needs attention. Now, the question is, how do you get people's attention? Well, you become persuasive. You evolve like an organism that's like mutating a new kind of arm that's shaped in a new way. Mm-hmm. Some new thing that's just more persuasive than every other organism that's out there. Mm-hmm. So to make that concrete, let's say you're YouTube. You evolve this new arm called autoplay the next video Mm -hmm. and it works and it turns out and it does and suddenly people watch let's say five to ten percent more videos just because you autoplay the next video and you create inertia okay so you do that the other organisms the other netflixes and facebook's out there they'll die if they don't also do the autoplay the next video Mm -hmm. arm thing so everyone is just evolving these persuasive the strategies. Race. Yeah, and I call it the, you know, the race to the bottom of the brainstem to basically seduce people's psychological vulnerabilities. So back to fake news. So what is fake news? Well, if you're some guy in, I think a lot of these guys are like Arizona or Macedonia. Yeah. Macedonia. Yeah, whatever. Who yeah. knew? And, and you figure out, right. okay, I can get people's attention by writing something that confirms their like underlying suspicions, conspiracy theories. Hillary Clinton's and, a lizard. Yeah, whatever. And Alien some, lizard. And, and there, that's the extreme example. Then there's much subtler examples that are just, you know, you know, using just extreme verbs on existing truths mm-hmm. that are, let's call it gray news instead of fake news or something. Mm-hmm. You know, but you do that and you can generate outrage. So if I figure out I can generate outrage, outrage, bam, I just got a new persuasive weapon. Mm-hmm. I can generate outrage and I'll get the attention. Well, you just got Breitbart, right? Right. You know, you can just generate outrage. And outrage from the people who believe it and those who don't like it, too. Exactly. Everyone. It works on everybody. That's the thing right. about this. That's This right. conversation is actually about a species, mm-hmm. us, that are waking up to the fact that things persuade us, even if we know that they persuade us. Like, mm-hmm. I know that outrage persuades me. Mm-hmm. It works on me. I can't believe they said that. Yeah. And and it just it's a reaction that is so strong and overpowering in me. Yeah. That, that I'll still click on. It. And then you also have a social media ability to react, you know, so quickly. One of the things I've been thinking about a lot is, you know, a lot of stuff Trump does with his tweets and the press reacts rather quickly to them. And, you know, about the 29th time, someone's like, I can't believe he said that. And I finally was like, why not? Because you believed it the last 29. Like, why can't you? Of course he's going to say this. No one, everyone feels like a fresh, fresh hell, essentially. Like, I yeah. never experienced him saying something idiotic before. I'm like, right. except the last 300 times. Right. And it reminds me of a, a Maya Angelou quote, when someone shows you who they are the first time, believe them. Right, right. You know? It reminds, like, reminds me when I think about relationships that when you finally break up, it's not because of something new, but because of the oh, first thing you first saw. Thing. That you the saw. first thing yeah. that was a problem. So tell me about that, that idea when you, so, so these, so outrage works. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, clearly. Yeah. And so now let's say you're Facebook. Um, and, you know, so far your, your ranking algorithm says, what should I put at the top of the news feed? Now, keep in mind, Facebook's business model is it needs to get as much attention from you as possible. Mm-hmm. So in a totally value neutral world where it doesn't actually care what, what gets your get attention, attention right. then it just says, okay, well, wh- whatever, you know, my newsfeed algorithm is looking at and says gets the most clicks or the most shares or the most comments, that's driving the most engagement. So I should literally just dr- put that stuff at the top. Mm-hmm. The problem is if you don't have values, you don't know what human values are there. Like, well, is it true? Does it, how does it make people feel? Does it generate honest conversation or divisive conversation? I mean, there's so many different things we could be caring about besides whether it gets clicks, shares, or, or comments. Right. And those are hard to discern from an algorithm. It's very hard. And they hard. don't want to. And Well, 
I mean, the question is, do they? I mean, no, so, they do not, because they're they're always like, we don't want to get in the, we don't want to be the one deciding. I'm like, but you should be, because you're yeah. putting it up there. It's that is the stop sign for all of them. It's fascinating, except for Google, which is like, we can tweak behind the scenes. Nobody knows what we're doing. Like, right. and I think the problem with something like Facebook is it has a, a, an inherent promise to their users that they can put up anything they want. And yeah. Google does not. So they can easily tweak it where you're but, not looking. But the funny thing about that, I call this Heisenberg morality. Mm-hmm. So there's still an algorithm today which actually does have a bias. It's mm-hmm. currently biased towards a certain set of factors, like right. whatever gets the most clicks. Whatever they pick, right. Yeah. And if it was accidental or unconscious, they'd say, like, like no, that's good. It's, it's, it's good for people. But as soon as you say, no, we should explicitly, consciously choose... What other values? Like, is it true? True. Does it do good. this? Does it, you know, does it have high reputational integrity? What's what's its business model? You know, we, you know, how fast do they publish it? For example, do we want to we want to reward websites that publish mm-hmm. the fastest, or we'll reward websites that do like these, you know, long, deep, evergreen kind of reflective mm-hmm. pieces? Um, as soon as you get conscious about it, they say, whoa, 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 whoa. Who are we to say? Who are we to say? What's good for people? Right. And because that's, a, that's, that's why this goes back to philosophy. Like, how can you agree on human values in a secular world mm-hmm. when, when businesses are implicitly putting certain values first? Which which they're not doing in this place. Uh, right. Well, it, well, they're implicitly putting the value of, like, whatever gets the most Where attention. Right. But well, they're not bi- seeing that as a moral value. decision. Yes, they don't. But it is, in fact. It or, is, in fact. When we get back, we're going to talk about what we can do about this and where we're going to go from here. Because it really has become, you know, I think a lot of these social media networks especially are becoming cesspools. And, and sort of it was interesting. One of the debates I had with the Facebook people was that, fine, if you don't want to have a choice in it or you feel like it's not your responsibility, your suburb is becoming... Suddenly, there's broken glass right. and trash and crap, and so your business isn't as good. And that seemed to perk them right up. You know what? Wait a minute. We don't want a trashy place. I'm like, well, that's what it is, and I don't want to be there. And so it's an interesting question. We'll talk about that and more when we come back with Tristan Harris, who is leading a movement called Time Well Spent. This episode is brought to you by M Particle, the growth API. Today, success as a media or commerce company requires you to take a data-driven approach across multiple screens. But doing that is hard. Legacy data platforms don't address modern data challenges, and SDK integrations are incredibly complex. MParticle is a simple and secure API, enabling you to connect easily to all of the leading marketing analytics and data warehousing tools in just minutes. The most forward-thinking brands such as Airbnb, Spotify, Hulu, and Venmo all use MParticle to accelerate growth in a multi-screen world. Visit mparticle.com slash decode to learn about how mparticle can simplify your data supply chain and drive engagement, retention, and monetization. Again, that's mparticle.com slash decode. This podcast is also brought to you by GoCD, the on-premise open source continuous delivery server created by ThoughtWorks. With GoCD's comprehensive pipeline modeling, you can model complex workflows for multiple teams with ease. And GoCD's value stream map lets you track a change from commit to deploy at a glance. GoCD's real power is in the visibility it provides over your end-to-end workflow, so you get complete control of and visibility into your deployments across multiple teams. Say goodbye to deployment panic and hello to consistent, predictable deliveries. To learn more about GoCD, visit gocd.io slash recode for a free download. Commercial support and enterprise add-ons, including disaster recovery, are available. We're here with Tristan Harris. He is a really compelling young man who's talking a lot about the implications of not just uh, social media, but all the technology we use and how 
even though some of it can now become, as it involves more and more in our life, become very damaging, what we should do about it, what consumers should do about it, and what companies should do about it. So let's talk about about that first. What what do you think the responsibility of companies is? Because most of them don't feel that, like they have very much responsibility. Yeah. They're well, just making these things. We don't know how people use them. Yeah, so that that just needs to change, mm-hmm. and and I don't know how many interviews we need to do, to make <laughs> yeah. that, but it, it's it's so clearly it it is impossible to hold that stance. Mm-hmm. They're good at it. I, I'm I would love to you know bring those conversations to the forefront as whenever the, whenever they're necessary because it is just not true. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there's a difference between when it's true and I believe it, but I can't say that that's true again. Mm-hmm. But so I'd first have to admit that it's a problem before I can try to fix it. Sure. One of the background problems is fundamentally advertising, mm-hmm. the business model of advertising, specifically engagement-based advertising, sure. meaning I, I have an unbounded interest in more in keeping of your you eyeballs for longer there. Yeah. So long as that's true, I can't get off this racehorse. Right. Everyone is, is there, again, no evil people, just companies that to succeed and survive need to ratchet And if outrage works, we'll use outrage. If fear works, we'll use fear. Right. You know, I mean, keep in mind, you know, a couple quotes that I like from the industry, not like, but our representative, uh, CEO of Netflix, Reed Hastings, saying, you know, our biggest competitors are YouTube, Facebook, and sleep. Mm-hmm. You know, because if you have more sleep, then you're getting less Netflix. Right. You know, so if they could eat into your <laughs> sleep budget, you know, again, where would, there, would, would they value human, that yeah. human value? Or would they right. say, hey, let's blow it away? All right. Um, or, you know, Lee Moonves from CBS News less. saying... Less Moonves. Less, less Moonves. Sorry. You know, Donald Trump's probably not good for America, but he's been great, great for, for, CB- for oh, CBS he News. He regrets saying that, boy. And he regrets it in CNN and said something similar. And so there's this, again, it comes back to just because this is what works at getting attention. Or money. Or money. Is it good? Mm-hmm. And, and so first is, can we change how we get our money? Can it not be advertising? Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously this story with Medium has been going around mm-hmm. how Ev Williams chose to fire, what is it, one-third yeah. of his, of his uh, not fire, but let go of one-third of his staff because mm-hmm. he's, he's fundamentally accepting that this business model of just advertising uh, and being a media, media business has inherent conflicts, problems, right. externalities. Again, pollution it generates. To use that business model generates sure. pollution. And so, so one thing is we need to have a, a different business model, and we need to not have that be the conversation it's been the last 10 years. For the last 10 years, people are saying, oh, we need to pay for things instead right, of getting it for free. Right. But we now have evidence, once we can draw the lines from, from fake news and ruining civic dis- discourse to this is coming in part from advertising, we now have the strongest ra- like rationale. We're ready to pay. Right. Now, the question is, how much are we willing to pay, and um, does the, do the economics work out? And should everybody pay? And that creates inherent inequalities. And let's right. let's have that conversation. The bad background news on that is that most of the world's default settings or free settings usually aren't good for people anyway. So right. even if there's an inequality, that's a longer problem to solve. So business models were ready to pay, and uh, there's different you know examples of this. Google launched something called, um, and this is not a, a pro Google stance or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, they launched something called Contributor. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know? You know I know about a lot of efforts like this. That right. you, you become there's been it's been like the tip jars. The and tip jars, yeah, yeah, exactly these kinds of things. But right. so what you need is so you need someone with a lot of distribution. Yeah. So uh, contributor, just for people out there who don't know, was this thing where you set up a budget of uh, you know it, sh- it could show you, for example, how much you know your Google has a decent idea of how much you consume on the internet mm-hmm. <laughs> in a strange way. 
uh, and could say basically, actually, for this much per month, you could be paying and not see any ads. Right. So you could be bidding on top of what everyone else bids. When you land on a web page, there's this instant auction, and all these technology companies basically bid on you know, point zero 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 one right. for your eyeball in that one moment. Mm-hmm. And basically, you just outbid them by one penny or one micro penny, mm-hmm. and you suddenly pay for what ads you want to show there, which is to say nothing. Right. Um, and so it turns out that uh, I don't know exactly what the numbers are, but I, from stuff that I heard, people actually value their own attention more than mm-hmm. advertisers do. Mm-hmm. Once that's made clear and there's a way to see that, meaning, you know, would you pay, you know, seven, eight dollars a month for basically a version of Facebook, which is entirely aligned with helping you live your life and get rid of getting rid of fake news or something Absolutely. like that. Absolutely. Right. And I think there's no place for Facebook to say, hey, would anybody pay? You know, mm-hmm. would, would 10 million people out there pay for... Well, it's too hard for them because they're doing very well in their current system. They're doing well in the current system. It grows and scales differently. It's important. Mm-hmm. So advertising allows you to get better and more efficient and make more money over time. If you fix the price at a certain subscription rate, um, it's different. But from the last numbers I heard at least a couple of years ago, the average revenue per user uh, Facebook was... I think it was like seven or eight dollars or something mm-hmm. like that. So per year, yeah. Uh, now that's averaged, of course, globally. Right. It used to be that at AOL too. He's like, he, I remember once his uh, speech. You're, you know, our users are worth twenty dollars a year to us. And I said, when am I going to get my ten of that for having yeah. ten year cow essentially? Right, right, right. So, but imagine you can basically pay for your. It's almost like I mean, I hate to invoke the slavery metaphor, mm-hmm. but it's like a self purchase agreement. You're mm-hmm. basically saying. I'm going to pay whatever I'm worth to you as currently as an intentional slave. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to pay to basically have the free version. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, that's, or the better that's, version where you actually the better take version. time to not make yeah. it a disgusting mess, essentially. Yeah. And, and again, I, I think it's not so much that there's any intention behind the disgusting right. mess that they create. But I think so the question is, how do they budget in? All the cleanup activities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Who, who's the who funds the department? Mm-hmm. That's the sustainability, clean mm-hmm. up the broken glass, make the city safe street. How do we fund that? Because right. that's got to come from somewhere. Right. What I used to say when I was at Google is like, you just look at a Google calendar of any Google employee, mm-hmm. and you just it's just packed. And you ask, where's that meeting that says, where is their product actually good for people? What are the where, where's the broken glass? You know, how do we make stuff better? That's not going to fit in their Google Calendar mm-hmm. until there's actually an explicit carve out. Mo- and also a business model for it. And a business model for it. So here's a, here's a concrete way that this mm-hmm. could happen. So here's another example of a different industry where there was a similar perverse incentive. So energy. I have a perverse incentive if I'm an energy company. I make more money the more energy you use. Right. But that's not good for our environment. No. So... California in the 1970s uh, set up this uh, regulated hybrid model where they set basically a target for basically how much energy they'd like people ideally to be using. And if if energy companies hit that target, the rest of the money that they would make gets reinvested and explicitly carved out for basically investment in sustainable energy programs Mm -hmm. and programs that help consumers save uh, energy and, and use less and also actually like uh, generating, you know, and research and new new forms of energy, and it basically prevented something like twenty four power plants from being built in California. Right. Super successful, uh, scaled across the United States. There's something similar here. What if essentially there's a target where companies, instead of wanting to maximize how much you use a product, maximize how much time they take from your life, mm-hmm. which is again a perverse incentive, and basically set a target that's aligned with what's good for people. And the rest basically gets reinvested in the departments that are currently underfunded right. that do do this kind of work. I mean, to Facebook's credit, for example, they have this, uh, I think it's called the Compassion Team or the Trust and Safety Team mm-hmm. that did this great work with Arturo Bahar on 
basically embedding nonviolent communication principles into the photo tagging sure. feature mm-hmm. so that teens wouldn't bully each other and, right. and abuse this ta- photo tagging feature. Now, I know people, you know, who come from that team. And, and similarly, they kind of ask me, like, when you were at Google doing that ethics stuff and you're trying to do the good for stuff, people, like, how do you do that? How do you prioritize that? And we all have the same question, which is, for those of us who are working more explicitly on the, you know, human values department of what's mm-hmm. just good for people, how does that get prioritized and funded? And so you can imagine something like this California energy thing mm-hmm. working out for technology companies. It, it could also, though, be, you know, I'm a cynical person, obviously, you know, like those ads that Exxon does with a lot of trees and everything looks totally. like, oh, we're giving back. We're planting trees. And so, you're like, you're still an awful rapacious so this is company. So this is super important because there's this sort of awful, there's this... Um, like moral offsetting, you mm-hmm. know, basically I'm yeah. polluting over here, but I'm donating or, over or here. Or Silicon Valley people, I'm buying carbon. I remember one saying, I'm buying carbon. I said, I said stop flying your friggin' plane, yeah. private plane. How about yeah. that? Right. Because like, that seems to be what would save energy, in my opinion. Like Totally. Kind of... Or Pepsi-Cola, you know, mm-hmm. creating diabetes and then mm-hmm. funding, you know, yeah. uh, whatever yeah. other programs over here. So sorry. So <laughs> I, I think there's this question of, you know, it's really admirable when people, when really wealthy tech people mm-hmm. do these huge philanthropic projects. But mm-hmm. I think the bigger question is, is again, going to the morality of, of what we're doing now, what, what, how do we make the existing impact of our everyday impact on people's lives good? And how do we investigate that? Um, and and what well, your point is, how do we avoid greenwashing? So how do we make, how do we avoid companies just telling themselves some false self-fulfilling narrative mm-hmm. that it allows their employees to feel good about themselves when in fact the actual outside right. world is still suffering? Right. And actually Facebook has done some of those ads like, oh, it brings you together. It's like, no, it isolates you. Oh, it brings you here. It's like, actually, it makes you lonely. Right. Um, so, you know, it's kind of, it's an interesting thing to watch them start to do that. Like Google has a series of ads that are very emotional and fantastic. Mm-hmm. When, in fact, it's nothing like what they – it it is to an extent. And the the one company that's actually been super affected at this, and I think it's actually accurate, is Apple with some of their ads. You you do have a good feeling about that company because there are things that you get from the products that it doesn't feel quite so – yeah. grabbing. I guess because they don't believe in it. They don't do advertising. It's just selling the product. So it has. Right. they have a different incentive. So you do feel good with your camera. Like, yeah. or you do. It's a, it's an interesting thing. Well, and, and companies are always going to do the marketing thing mm-hmm. and the greenwashing thing. Mm-hmm. Let's just acknowledge that. Right. Um, but, you know, can, you know, and you mentioned Apple and, and their business model. Again, Apple and Google. Uh, so Google's business model, a big part of it is advertising. Almost um, all of it. But a lot of that advertising revenue comes from search, which mm-hmm. actually is, is actually a, a pretty pretty aligned business model sure. in terms of the needs of everybody. Mm-hmm. The problem, again, is the engagement advertising side of it. Mm-hmm. So in this position, um, Google's business model with search, and when they make a mobile phone, for example, Android uh, is not trying to, you know, specifically isn't designed to get you to use every app for as long as possible. Mm-hmm. But it's also not explicitly to help you spend your time well, according to time well spent. Mm-hmm. But Apple and Google's business models are mostly aligned here with just the phone, specifically, in which they could, if we demanded next year, instead of Flashy new phone, bigger camera. You can throw it in the toilet, whatever. Yeah, that it that it actually is just entirely designed to help people spend their time well or care for these human values. I don't know what to call this thing. Mm-hmm. We we call our thing time well spent because that's right. a, a good encapsulation. So of talk human about values. the actual physical thing. So what could be like you talked about products at the beginning of this that like you've used Twitter too much. You've, there have been things like that I've tried. They just don't work very well. They don't work well because they need to be first of all integrated into the most people. A lot it's of also like don't. steps. I don't know why that's good. Like here you've done fifteen thousand. I'm like, what does that mean? Like yeah. like it's all very. You've done this much on Twitter. Well, does that mean too much or too little or do I yeah. it doesn't it doesn't it's almost like a lot of the the Fitbit's the same thing is they're not 
They're not actionable. You know what I mean? They just tell me the number, and I don't know what 15,000 means. Is that It seems good, but what does that mean for my heart? What I like, for example, on those things is, hey, you ate a donut this morning. That was a mistake because here's what happened to your blood sugar. Now get up and eat this or do this or see this. It's the same thing with your phone. Like, hey, you've been sitting there looking at Facebook for a little bit too long. Mm-hmm. Maybe you should go and try. Yeah, let, me, let me make this super concrete because, sure. I mean, yeah. part of it's so hard. There's so much material here. I mean, there's so, so much to talk about. So what specifically could Apple and Google do right. to make your smartphone give you back your agency mm-hmm. in the face of an increasingly persuasive world? Okay. So if companies are essentially competing to implant or install a habit in your mind, they're, they're competing to just create mm-hmm. this unconscious process that's yeah, going to run in your mind. Yeah, sit there and touch it. Yeah, to, to come back every day to do this thing. Okay. So if that's what they're actually competing for, and that's the currency of what they're competing for, you know, let's imagine that there's this this little page in, in uh, iOS or Android called Your Habits. And it reflects back to you, just like in a given week, what are the things that you're doing? What are the kind of surfaced habits? Like when you wake up in the morning, the first thing you do is you check Twitter. Mm-hmm. And your average time on Twitter is about 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. And then it would just ask you, is that what you want to be doing? Mm-hmm. Or is there something else you'd want to be doing? And depending on what you'd want to do, let's say it's just less time or maybe you want to start by some silence first, mm-hmm. it would just make sure that no notifications come during that time and that when you say you want to use it less, it's now on your team. So when you're in the Twitter app or something in the morning, at the top in the status bar, it could basically say something like, you know, when it gets close to your whatever limit, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, it puts a little timer. You know how when you're in a phone call, it like flashes mm-hmm. the top? It could do something like that for your time when you get near that for the morning. Right? Yeah, how would Twitter feel about that? So Twitter wouldn't feel very good about that. No. But we're also talking about shifting everybody from mm-hmm. a world where they're trying to maximize attention to a world where, you know, you pay some small amount for your Twitter account. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people would be happy to do that if they actually understood the trade-off. Right. And one of the things that's hard, I think, is what is the benefit? Because a lot of these things are addictive, like yeah. actually addictive. Now, I know there's tons of people out there like turn off, like Ariana Huffington, turn off the phone, you know, put it up in the other room, I have a bed for it. <laughs> it's it's actually addictive. It's yeah. actually like cigarettes. So it's like not so easy to turn it off, not so easy. Which is, again, why we, you know, again, everyone's basically competing to be better at addicting you than someone else. Mm-hmm. Can your phone basically say, okay, let, let me, here's your addiction management panel. Like, mm-hmm. what, like, how do we, what are the things you're happy you're addicted to? Maybe you're super happy with your addiction to mm-hmm. exercise in the morning. And right. you feel great about that. Or you're happy to your well, addiction to headspace. Be. Right. Great. Wonderful. So that's, we're not trying to say morally that mm-hmm. you shouldn't be addicted, but how do we give you more agency? So again, this like habit manager right. thing could be built into your phone. But my question is, can you know that you're addicted? Because it is, addi- it's, it feel, I am not an addictive person. I never smoked, never drank or something, yeah. but I know I have a problem with Twitter. I just sure. do. I yeah. can't stop. Me too. And so, and it's actually can't stop. It's not won't stop. And so yeah. I, I you wonder what happens. I mean, there's lots of brain science on this and where we're going on focus mm-hmm. and things like that. But it, it is a, it, it's such a dopamine. It must be dope. Do, what are all those yeah, I've, I've written a lot about this. I mean, there's a mm-hmm. great woman, Natasha Scholl, uh, who wrote a book called Addiction by Design and mm-hmm. showing how slot machines work. In the TED Talk, yeah, I talk a about a slot similar. machine thing. Yeah. I mean, here, here's one little example a lot of people don't know of a deliberate design element inside of products okay. that makes it work like a slot machine. So let's use the Twitter example since we're talking about it. You know how you land on Twitter, and then there's this extra delay. There's a couple yeah. seconds, one second, two seconds, and then the number shows up mm-hmm. of how many notifications you have. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they could have just shown you the number. But that extra delay is exactly how a slot machine works. It's a variable schedule reward. You don't know when it's going to come back, and the anticipation is what generates the large release I of dopamine. See. Dopamine is actually released in anticipation, ah, not at, at, the, at the moment. Yeah. So 
um, you know, that's an example of a design element that could be just subtly shifted and it would be just, it would have a slightly different mm -hmm. feeling to Which it. Which they don't want. They want... Which, again, they, they don't want right. until there's a... Or it, they used to do that with... I remember when I did my book on AOL, Steve was like, oh, the way we ding you is how... It, it's like you're a mouse. Like, grab food, grab food. Yeah. And they used to talk about it explicitly. And, or one of the things that was fascinating at AOL, they used to... You know, when you open up the AOL screen, and this is for people who are not old enough, don't remember this, but they would have a picture there that was slightly blurry, but it was always of a girl or someone pretty. Uh -huh. And so... you. You lean in and want to click on it, yeah, yeah. thinking it was your computer's problem, when in fact it wasn't, and it made you click. Oh, because it, right. it made you lean in and click. Well, it's someone involved a persuasive uh, yeah. mechanism. Like oh that. no, they and knew. That, that I was like, well. why is this not clear? Well, that we do that on purpose. We yeah. make it fuzzy. Yeah. So again, um, there's there's a really big question here, which like mm -hmm. let's zoom out and say. We need to basically say we've been unconsciously building this attention economy city that a billion people live inside of as a result of these designers right. at Apple and Google. We need to suddenly stop. Where are the Jane Jacobs? Let's get the groups of people together to think really about human values and how to design the city so it works for people. Mm -hmm. People will still be competing for attention. You know, your, your internal thought processes, you're thinking about your future, your friends, Facebook, and all these other people, I mean, all these different things will ultimately fit into a finite pool of attention that you have. Mm -hmm. The question is, how do we organize that city better? We have to invent zoning laws, coordination between people, so you're not in these infinite loops. Uh, uh, I send you a message, and then I don't know when you're going to send it back, so mm -hmm. I sit there and wait 10 yeah. seconds or a minute, and Texting then you don't respond. Is the devil's work, as far as I can. <laughs> right. In the TED Talk, there's a, some solutions that are presented there about focus mode, um, about better ways of coordinating our interpersonal communications yeah. so that we're, we're responding at the same time or looking at the same time. Or not responding. What's interesting is people do feel like they have to respond. One of the things that people, things that used to be unsaid now immediately are said. It's a really interesting phenomenon. When I'm dealing a lot like with younger people, I'm like, you don't have to text. You don't have to actually text back or say something. But it, it, again, it's the same kind of yeah kind of thing but but i think that this has to be kind of a conscious conversation like right. essentially we're all now citizens of this city mm -hmm. part of that citizenship is like yeah let's be con like how should we be using that what's the consumer awareness what, like mm -hmm. what's the psychology we should have what are some norms we can develop sort of like maybe this big glass of soda isn't so good for us yeah should we well look what happened with that with mayor bloomberg he got such a pushback on that right 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 right. but i mean yeah so how do, how do we know that something's not good for us and how do we talk about that in a neutral way how do we get past the old arguments that yeah well it gives me so many good benefits it gives me so many bad things right. so i guess net net it's good yeah. who's to say it must be fine they're who's not responsible say? who's yes. to say all that needs to end we we know that there are certain things that are that are causing problems we mm -hmm. could just make a list mm -hmm. say okay how can we get more of the goods that we're currently getting that's wonderful mm -hmm. and can we reduce some of the bads is there an equilibrium where we get more of the goods and less of the bad. So and there's definitely that. We have to finish up now, but two things I want you to finish up on. One is, do you feel hopeful about this? Because it seems like we now have a president that's on a twitch. You know what I mean? Like he's the perfect example of this. He's twitchy. He's reactive. He's president, which is disturbing. And everyone seems even more so. It seems even more. And then you have the tech company sort of rolling over and saying nothing about a lot of things these days. Do you? Are you hopeful? Um, I don't want to get into the political side. I'm, I'm definitely not hopeful on that front. I'm, on that, um, but in general, very, that, but that move is that we're getting more twitchy than ever, sort of. I, I think that is happening, and I think we're it, this is a crisis. I mean, mm -hmm. I think um, we need to just acknowledge that it's a crisis and say, how can we get together and help solve it? And I'm, I'm literally here at the service of 
you know, whatever these these companies can can do to evolve once we admit these some of these problems mm-hmm. and say, how can we actually fix it? Once you admit you have a problem. All right, last question. What is the three things people can do? I don't usually like to do how-tos, but <laughs> that they can do to begin to remove themselves. What? What could people do if they really care about this? Because I do, for sure. You mean just better habits? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so one thing that's super obvious, most people, though, may not do turn off every single notification except for notifications that come from other human beings who are trying to reach you. Okay. The number of things that are on your phone that yep. are basically a Mine machine or a growth team, even like things like Apple News. I mean, yeah. all of this stuff is Suddenly just... Suddenly went on again on my phone. I don't know how that happened. Yeah, I noticed that actually today. Yeah. Apple News turned back on their notifications. They just turn off everything that's not a human being trying to reach me through a, like a messaging app or something. So bots, goodbye. Yeah. Another thing, uh, this is all in the Atlantic article... You know, so basically, I keep my home screen to just in and out tools that are that are only if I used it unconsciously, I would never get sucked in. Right. If, if Google Maps is on my home screen, I never get accidentally. Yeah, this I bowl need into, to find this. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's just a useful. It's a utility. So just in and out utilities. Mm-hmm. Um, so your home screen just to that, and then learn to launch everything else by typing it. Ah, uh, so you have to find it. Yeah. So if you think about it, what we want to do is imagine this, this, this new filter that you're going to put between you and your phone, which is basically a filter that that tosses out unconscious uses of your phone mm-hmm. and keeps only conscious uses. Right. What would that filter look like? Well, it's called typing because mm-hmm. you can't actually move your fingers mm-hmm. consciously. So you've got to go find Instagram. you got to go find it. But you got to go find it by typing the name, not by um, swiping to the folder and doing sure. it. People then have a muscle memory for I swipe once, I go to the top left and I do this. Right. So don't do that. So right. literally just type it. Um, that's something that you can do. And uh, I keep my second folder. So basically, my I only have two pages of apps. A lot of people keep like 10 pages of apps. Yeah, I do. And then what they do is this weird habit. I've, I did so much anthropology in New York studying this. People do this thing. They unlock their phone. They swipe through like all their pages of apps. They swipe back through all their pages of apps and they turn off their phone. And it's just this weird, it's just like, yeah. it's just, it's kind of this OCD like thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you just have two pages of apps, it stops some of that because mm-hmm. you don't just end up yeah. turning on just to yeah. go through this behavior and you can watch yourself So what should it. be on there? What would be Uber, Maps? So I've got like, yeah, Uber, Maps, Notes. Uh, I also put my aspirations on there. So you mentioned mm-hmm. audiobooks. I do podcasts. I, I love yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, my phone and messages. And that's basically it. Yeah. And, um, nothing else. Everything else on the second screen is in folders. I never even go into the folders. Like I said, I just type things. That is a fantastic things. idea. And my folders are all gray. So I don't want any color basically triggering my mind to use something. So oh, this okay. insight came from... Uh, last thing is uh, the Google micro kitchens. There was a study done that mm-hmm. basically uh, Google, they have all these snacks everywhere. They do. And they're delicious and people uh, love it, but they also started eating yeah. candy. Yeah, Sergey got fat. I remember yeah. him telling so, me. So there you go. Yeah. So they actually did this thing where they, they said, let's not take away the M&Ms, mm-hmm. but we're noticing there's like millions of dollars that the company of M&Ms spends on the, the trigger, which is the wrapper, mm-hmm. that color, that, that look. Mm-hmm. When you see it, it triggers you sure. into wanting it or the uh-huh. color of the M&Ms. So instead, let's put them in porcelain opaque jars. Ah, so you don't see them. So you don't see it. Right. And then the label isn't like a an M&M's wrapper that's stuck to the outside, but specifically like a, they put a Comic Sans, you know, very neutral font that just says M&M's. Mm-hmm. So now you still see that there's M&M's. They're still there. You can still get it. You. But they don't trigger you. Yeah. So again, that's a conscious choice. Yeah, my now son said this the other day. He was eating a lot of junk and I was like, why are you eating so much junk? He goes, well, if I see it, I have to have it. Yeah. <laughs> Make it so I don't see it. And exactly. I go, all right, that's very reasonable of you. To, that's a reasonable thing. Totally. And then, but these are all these subtle things that are small. I mean, imagine if, if companies built this into the choice mm-hmm. architectures. They are yeah. building choice architectures a billion people live no, by. No, they don't want to do that. They can and they and they should. All and right. we should talk about it. So. Absolutely. Tristan, this has been riveting. I am this is an area I think is super important. And it also goes to the area of responsibility yeah. on lots of things, on, on the impact that they actually have. These are now a lot of companies here 
still see themselves as small little things that don't have any impact and all they do is impact people all day. So it's really important to think about what that means and the responsibilities that go with it. And I really appreciate you being here. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for coming by. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews I've done with self-help author Tim Ferriss, Reddit CEO Steve Huffman, and actor-slash-investor Ashton Kusher, just to name a few. All those interviews and more are at recode.net slash decode. Now that you're done with this, why not try one of our other podcasts? Recode Media with Peter Kafka comes out every Thursday. On Fridays, I host Two Embarrassed to Ask along with Lauren Good of The Verge. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from our events like the Code Conference, Peter Kafka's Code Media, which is coming up, and Jason Del Rey's Code Commerce, which is also coming up. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Digital Media, which distributes this show. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. Remember to subscribe to the show and leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday with another great guest. Tune in then. For companies to succeed today, they need builders, and builders need tools that allow them to innovate. The problem is, most cloud vendors don't offer the range of tools builders are looking for. Amazon Web Services is the leading cloud service provider giving builders the reliability and security they need. AWS pioneered cloud computing over 10 years ago to help any business, from the smallest startups to the biggest global companies, create their own applications and manage their workloads. By listening to what customers want, AWS is adding more features and services than any other cloud provider while consistently reducing prices. So if you'd rather focus on creating a business instead of an infrastructure, check out podcast.aws. Learn about how AWS can help you build a better future today and let builders build.